all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, "Eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. Good morning and welcome to Southern Remedy. This is Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center here with you this morning live. That's right. Unless you're listening to a podcast or a previous episode. That's right. We are the program that brings medical information to you specifically to you individually with whatever questions that you might have about your symptoms or new medication or potential side effects or whatever that's involving your health or the health of somebody in your family or that's near and dear to you, you can always send us an email. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. I did mention our podcast, whatever your favorite podcasting app is, if you'll just search for uh, Southern Remedy on MPB uh, Think Radio, you can find us and download that and listen to us at your leisure. Maybe sometimes uh, you catch the end of a discussion on Southern Remedy if you're listening live and you want to go back and listen to it. That's an excellent way to do that. Or if you want to go to our website, you certainly could do that. We do try to archive all of our programs on there. So that's mpbonline.org. It is a balmy uh, morning here in the south, uh, but with a nice breeze. It almost feels coastal up here in central Mississippi and uh, Jackson when I just walked out of my out to my car a little while ago to drive over here to the studio. But, um, you know, it certainly feels nice um, if you dress appropriately, which most of the time I do not um, because I'm in and out. So it's uh, it's it's certainly a challenge to do that. If you are outside, though, and particularly if you do have some chronic medical conditions, uh, please uh, just uh, remember to hydrate often um, unless there's some limitations on what you uh uh, you know, what you can drink a day um, uh, as far as, you know, things like heart failure and that kind of thing in stage real disease. Certainly there are some limitations there. But even then, you want to make sure that you're you're staying hydrated if you're outside and uh, dressed appropriately. Usually loose uh, fitted clothing works well and something uh, we have all these advanced um, fabrics nowadays that can wick sweat away and help to cool you. I saw one advertisement for, and I can't remember what brand it was, but basically it was uh, advertising that this long sleeve shirt would cool your, uh, lower your surface temperature nine degrees. That's hard to, that's, that's hard to believe nine degrees. That's a, a big swing. But they can help, and certainly, you know, areas that are exposed to the sun, if you can cover those up with hats or other things like that, that can reduce your exposure. But uh, certainly, if you're able to do that and get out and uh, get around, uh, pass a couple of people out for their walk or their run in the midday in Mississippi. So uh, uh, you want to be careful if you're doing that and uh, 
uh, take some take some water or some something to rehydrate with uh, if you're doing that. From time to time in my clinic, I do have uh, medical students with me, and I just so happen to have a medical student with me on Tuesday, and we were talking about hypertension management, and I had a string of patients that uh, were treated with uh, for hypertension, for high blood pressure, and every single one of them had a little bit different regimen. So the question came up, why... Do we have so many different medications to treat high blood pressure? Why can't we just have one or two? Is it because they don't work? Um, is it because that uh, that there's just not uh, a good handle on that? So what's what's the thought process behind that? And it was an excellent question, and it's one that comes up with my patients a lot. And you might even have that question. Um, sometimes I'll have someone in the same family that I'm treating or, or they'll come in and they'll say, you know what, I think I may have high blood pressure, but my, my mom or dad, they take this. So can you prescribe the same thing for me? And sometimes that will work. But a lot of times we have to take into account a lot of other factors. Pulse rate is one of them. A lot of blood pressure medications will decrease the pulse rate, particularly beta blockers are a big one. Uh, and we don't want that pulse rate to get too low. Uh, certainly, if you have a higher pulse rate, that might be a class of medications to treat you with. Most everyone responds very well to a diuretic. And one of the most common diuretics are the thiazide diuretics. Those are things that, you guessed it, end in zide. So like hydrochlorothiazide uh, would be one. And then there's one that doesn't really have that ending. Chlorothalidone is another one that's, that's common. And sometimes those are use individually. Um, They work at the kidney level to really decrease blood pressure. Um, A lot of people uh, will call those fluid pills or fluid tablets. And although they are diuretics, which means they increase the amount of urine that you produce, the main way that they work is antihypertensive medications is a little bit different over the long haul. And honestly, you don't get that much of a diuretic effect. So it's a little bit of a, of a misnomer with that. Uh, but those are two classes. And the other classes are calcium channel blockers and angiotensin uh, receptor blockers and ACE inhibitors. We've got about five or six different big classes of the most common ones. And generally, we try to match those up with each individual patient and what kind of other conditions they may have. For instance, if you're a diabetic, then you may benefit in the treatment of your high blood pressure with the uh, use of an angiotensin receptor blocker. Those are things that end in pril, like lisinopril, benazapril, uh, enalapril. Uh, those um, medications and the uh, angiotensin receptor blockers, which are sartin, so losartin, olmosartin, all those can be beneficial uh, with um, your prevention of, of uh, damage to your to your kidneys from hypertension and diabetes. So it just sort of depends on the individual patient. And even if you have those medical conditions, there may be a reason why we can't use them or why we might want to use them. And uh, another thing to keep in mind if you have high blood pressure, there are other medications used to treat other things which may be beneficial for your blood pressure as well. So some of the medications that we use for the treatment of heart failure and diabetes, certainly some of these do have positive effects on your blood pressure and getting it down to goal. Um, But whatever the reason, hypertension is one of the most common chronic conditions that are out there in the general population and 
We see a lot of it just from inactivity and uh, because of what we eat and genetics. And um, it certainly um, can be very silent and can go on for a long period of time without any symptoms. So you want to get that checked out. If your doctor says, hey, I think you have high blood pressure. I think we need to treat it. Don't blow it off just because you don't have any symptoms. Because you don't want to wait around till you have that symptom of a heart attack or a stroke. That would be a bad thing. That's the thing that we're trying to prevent. We're going to go to Tom from Brandon. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Dr. Jimmy. Uh, I need to pick your brain this morning. Go ahead. Pick away. Uh, I, uh, my wife's, uh, one of my wife's brothers uh, was visiting from out of state, and he was staying with another brother on the coast. So I drove down and dropped her off so she could spend uh, the week with them, and I came back Monday. But overnight, uh, for some reason, uh, I woke up Monday morning, and I had the stiffest neck ever. Uh, I guess a pain in the neck, but not because of the in-laws. But uh, <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> so that was uh, Monday morning. I, You know, I traveled for a living, stayed in lots of hotels and all, and I never had this problem. But so, first of all, I guess if you have an opinion as to what might have occurred overnight, and secondly, more importantly, I've had this pain uh, Monday morning, and it's now Wednesday morning, and I still can't turn my neck to the right or left without a, uh, a lot of pain. I have to turn my whole body to look one way or the other. Uh, I've used medicated uh, patches. Uh, I've been in the whirlpool. I've uh, taken some uh, uh, leave and, uh, and some uh, topicals. And I just can't seem to shake this. So if there's a remedy that you're familiar with that might help, I, I certainly would appreciate it. Sure. Yeah, neck pain like that certainly is a common thing. And it, for whatever reason, it can just pop up like that. It might be an overuse injury or it might be a, a localized muscle spasm within the neck itself. Very rarely is it, you know, and a lot of people will say, oh, you got a pinched nerve in your neck and uh, honestly, that's not exactly true most of the time and how it, uh, and how it presents. Um, but it's more likely to be a muscle strain or spasm and it might be affecting a, a peripheral nerve, but, um, you know, disc problems and those kinds of things, certainly they may, uh, occur this way. Um, but they tend to go on a lot longer and don't, and don't get better. Most neck pain like this gets better over about four to five days. And some of the things that you are trying are, are some of the things that can help in that time that the muscles are just sort of relaxing and uh, doing their repair uh, to the damaged tissue. You don't have to have a really wrenching neck injury, though, to have this. So sometimes just the way that you sleep at night may have done that. Or if you were moving things the day before, even if you didn't feel it, there could be something that you strained to cause that. And as long as it's sort of localized to the neck itself and not traveling down your arm or if you have loss of sensation or tingling in your fingers of one or both arms uh, or loss of strength where, you know, sometimes people will come in and they'll say, I've got this neck pain, but I also can't pick up a cup with my right hand and I'm right handed. And that's a new finding. So those are some of the red flags we look for. But if it's sort of the usual neck pain, um, generally speaking, most people find some comfort with warm heat. Um, and if you can get in the shower 
or even soak it in the tub, you know, it's sometimes just depending on where it is, it's a little bit hard so that you don't, you know, fall asleep or fall underneath the water or anything. But if you can get that warm heat on that, uh, actually uh, moist heat, warm heat would be a sort of an oxymoron, wouldn't it? Uh, moist heat on that, and that can help sort of loosen up those tissues. The NSAIDs you talked about, like Advil, ibuprofen, Motrin, they do help too. You do have to take them for one, you know, more than one day usually to do that. And then one thing that's not over-the-counter, I did hear you say patches, which I'm uh, assuming that's probably like a lot of derm patch that you can get over-the-counter, which, again, is very – that's pretty helpful, too, if it's a muscle problem. The problem with the neck, though, is that there are a lot of structures that are deep. Um, there's a lot of muscles that attach very deep in there and from the skin. So you're not going to penetrate as much as, say, if you were hurting on your arm or your leg, and it's a little bit easier to get to those muscles uh, with a patch. Um, but if you've done all of that and you're getting to the point where probably another couple of days, if you're still hurting, you probably need to get it checked out. Um, they may want to do some x-rays just to make sure you don't have a misalignment of something there that's causing the problem. Uh, or if you have a bone spur or something that they may want to get further things, uh, to, to look at that position. And then beyond that, there's a lot of different modalities that people have have used, from everything from acupuncture to physical therapy. Uh, there are some, you know, even uh, chiropractic uh, techniques that can help with that. But if you're hurting more than about four or five days, you probably need somebody to look at that just to make sure there's not another problem there, like yeah. like a nerve that's being impinged upon by a disc that's in between the vertebrae or something like that. Yeah, a, a couple of questions. One, I don't think it can be anything too serious because it was only I only slept overnight, so I didn't yeah. do anything strenuous for sure. But am I treating the right? I've been trying to treat the neck where it's most painful when I turn. But is it possible that my upper back by my shoulder is really what I should be uh, treating? Uh, is there a connection there? No, I'd, I I would do what you're doing and treating the spot that it's hurting. If it were you know, most of the time, if it were from lower down, that's a little bit unusual to go back up like that, to be referred back up. And you'd almost always have pain in that lower back area. Um, so if you're having just this the neck. Upper back. Yeah. Yeah. Well, e- yeah. Either either place. I, I probably would. It's not going to hurt to do that. You know, if you want to extend down where you're either doing like the moist heat or, or something like that. But it's unlikely that anything lower down than the neck is causing problems further up. Um, one other thing, you know, sometimes I will use, and this is a prescription medication, so this is outside the bounds of something you could get over the counter, but I'll use a, a, uh, muscle relaxer. I like to use the ones that are less sedating and my favorite is, is methocarbamol or Robaxin is the name of it. And particularly if patients are having more symptoms at night or if they're waking up in the middle of the night with pain or if they're, you know, in the morning and if I, on exam, if that, if where they're having pain, if I feel like there's a lot of spasm in the muscle or the muscle's really tight, sometimes that can help about two to three days, even if you just take it at night. Again, you have to watch out, um, you know, the older you are, the more susceptible you are to, to uh, sleepiness when you take that, or if you're taking other medications that cause that. But that is one thing that can be prescribed that may help out, you know, like a three to five day course of that. And then if you're still having problems, they probably should be seeing you and looking at that. But uh, I agree. I don't, it doesn't, nothing you, you described really sounds that serious at this point. 
Um, and it's I, I probably it's probably that you just need to give it a little bit more time. Listeners have heard us talk about you know things that like a pulled muscle of the intercostal muscles, which are in between your ribs. You know, if you had a sprain in your hand, you could just give your hand a rest for a while. I mean, it's easier to do that. If you have a strained muscle or a, a torn ligament or something in your chest wall, it's you just can't quit breathing to do that. Same thing with your neck. You can do what you're describing and try not to turn from the you know rotational component for the left and the right. But that's hard to do. And our heads weigh a good amount. And those muscles on our neck... They help to stabilize your head, um, you know, uh, through our day-to-day movements. And that's not an easy job. And sometimes the way we sleep will misalign that enough to where you're having muscle strain or other problems. But I'd give it a couple of more days, Tom. And then if you're not having any, you know, improvement in it by what you're doing, then certainly I would I would contact your physician at that point. Okay. Well, thank you, Jimmy. Uh, Dr. Jimmy, uh, this show was very worthwhile. Uh and uh, it's great that you're able to uh, take these calls on the spur like we, like I have just done. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you for calling. We're going to go to Craig from Biloxi, who's been patiently ra- waiting. Good morning, Craig. Hey, good morning. Uh, I donated blood a few decades ago, and it had uh, hepatitis markers in it. And I was wondering if those markers go away. And on a second Part of a question is, is it beneficial for men to donate blood or anyone to donate blood? Yeah, great questions. Um, Yeah, there are certain things that they check routinely in screening, particularly if you give blood. And then there are other things that we typically check. And some of those are, have you had a past infection with something? And sometimes that's easier you know, depends on what you're testing for. Now, the things that you're describing in some of the hepatitis viruses, particularly hepatitis C and B as in boy, um, there's about, you know, five or six different ones. They go, they, they exhaust the letters quickly in the alphabet. But those are the two biggest ones that particularly affect the liver and are of most interest if you're giving blood so that you, if you have an active infection with those that you don't give that. So depending on what it was, yes, those can stay there for a long period of time, and they test for different things. So an antibody would be a natural substance that your body produces against um, those viruses, and it could either be from a vaccine like hepatitis B vaccine. That's a common one we give to healthcare workers like myself um, that, uh, so that we, if we were exposed to hepatitis B, we would not get that. And we also give it now as a routine vaccination to children to help prevent that. And as a result, we really don't have a whole lot of, uh, um, you know, hepatitis B, um, infections like we used to see them. Hepatitis C, there's not really a vaccination for that yet. Uh, but it is something that we can treat, but it is one of the most common causes of chronic cirrhosis and hepatitis in adults. So that is, is something that we're interested in. And again, it would be testing for the antibody. You can do further testing to see if you have an active infection. The antibody just tells you that at some point you've been exposed to that. Sometimes there are short-term antibodies called IgM um, and they only last for a few months. And that's when the usually if the initial exposure to that IgG are the long term antibodies. So typically, if you've got an IgG antibody against something, 
that's something that your body has recognized and said, yeah, we need to fight this. We're going to produce antibodies. And the longer you have antibodies in your system, they can go down in number with age, with time, but that helps protect you against that same infection later on. So, you know, back to your question about those markers, uh, if that's what they were testing for, which that it sounds like that's what they were testing for. In the case of hepatitis C, you might have to get some further testing. Hepatitis B, uh, same kind of thing. Uh, and there are some tests to test for the viral particles themselves. So I, if you're in doubt, you know, if you, if you got questions about that, because it can be sort of complex, whether you have an, uh, an infection that just happened or one that happened maybe years ago and you cleared it and you're fine now, yeah, that might be worthwhile, you know, going to your healthcare provider and saying, hey, can you check this out? Um, second question about giving blood. Yes, we have... Uh, constantly, intermittently, we have shortages of blood in different times. And that's one of the best ways you can give a gift of life to somebody is from donating blood. There are very few individuals that cannot donate blood, and there are multiple reasons for that. Some of them are they don't make enough blood cells or they're losing blood cells themselves. So certainly somebody who's anemic, who doesn't have enough red blood cells to donate uh, or platelets or other blood components, then that that might prevent them from doing that. But if you can, or you might have a chronic infection that prevents you from doing that. But outside of those things, uh, it is a very, very important thing to do. It can save somebody's life, uh, particularly if you have a rarer uh, blood type. And um, that's, you know, some, something that can, uh, but even if you don't have a rare blood type, um, you know, blood period is always in need. So that's something you can do. It doesn't really harm most people who are healthy enough to do that. Um, it, your body, uh, the amount that they take out is not significant enough to cause any damage. They, you don't get anything. You, there's no way to catch something from donating blood. That's one of the uh, myths out there is like, well, I don't want to get anything if I go and donate blood. Well, that's not, that's not going to happen because of the way that they, they do it. It's all sterile technique, and certainly there's nothing that can be transmitted to you. Um, and then also, you know, your body will replenish your red blood cells at about the rate of 1% per day, which is, sort of explains the time period on giving blood is spaced out enough so that your body would have time to reconstitute that volume. But it is very useful and, and uh, certainly can save somebody's life who needs that blood. And our, our blood banks that we have, you know, and there's only so long that you can keep that blood too before it's sort of out of date, so to speak. Uh, but that is an excellent way to do that. A lot of people want to know their blood types, not something that we typically do um, just to know it, because every time you give blood, they're going to verify that. Um, and every time, you know, if you go in the hospital, they're going to verify that. But that's something that unless you've been told you can't, for whatever reason, give blood, that's something that I would encourage everybody who can to go and do that. Okay. Yeah, I have had a subsequent uh, blood test and they didn't flag anything. And uh, there was one time I could not donate because I'm very active, and they said my blood pressure was too low. Yeah, so, yeah. Okay, thank you. All right, Craig, thank you. We're going to go to Mike from Hazelhurst. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. What's your question this morning? Oh, uh, you you were talking about heart rate and yeah, blood yeah. pressure medicine. Uh-huh. And uh, I've been on lisinopril for over 10 years 
And my heart rate has dropped from the mid-60s down to the mid-50s. Uh, would that be caused by the lisinopril or... Yeah, yeah. Lisinopril is an ACE inhibitor, and that class does not drop your heart rate. So that shouldn't be causing your heart rate to drop. The the class that I was talking about are called the beta blockers, um, but yeah. they act a totally different than the lisinopril. You know, heart rate does it can change over time, and there can be various reasons for that. Generally speaking, particularly if you have instituted an exercise program or become more active. Your heart rate t- t- tends to decrease a little bit. So, if you look at the extreme of that, like athletes, like professional athletes and Olympic athletes, particularly the ones that do long distance events, they will have extremely low heart rates in the 40s and 50s, even. And that's a totally normal process. Now, if you're not doing that, though, and you have a heart rate that gets down usually below 50, that can be a problem, particularly if you're having other symptoms with that, like shortness of breath or um, or dizziness or lightheadedness. But if you're not, then 50s as a resting heart rate might be okay because, you know, that just means that your heart is able to pump more blood and is more efficient in doing that so that it doesn't beat as fast. Certainly, if you get up and you walk around, you pick up something heavy and you carry it or run or that your heart rate's going to go up. In fact, it's a pretty wide range for most people that you can, you know, have a heart rate like that. So, uh, but that's, that shouldn't be caused by the lisinopril itself. Yes, sir. Yeah, I've got a good heart. Uh, 30 years ago when I'd run two miles, my heart rate would barely get up to 80 and all the, all the other guys, hell, their heart rate would be well over 100. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, uh, Frustrating for them, I'm sure. <laughs> but that's well. Okay. All right, Mike. Thank you for that question. I think we're going to go to. I think we dropped somebody there, but I think Larry is next from Ridgeland. Good morning, Larry. Good morning. How you doing? Good. I got a strictly serious painful problem with my head. I have arthritis. Okay. If I eat, and if I eat certain foods, I get some via cramps in my fingers, and they're, they're extremely, extremely painful. My physician sent me to um, somebody like the therapy, mm-hmm. and that kind of helped. And when, when I was at one of the sessions, it acted up, and the therapist was able to see my hands and put notes in it for my doctor. I'm supposed to see my doctor today. I can't eat things like tuna. Um, I, I got to watch my salt. If I eat... Uh, Molly, uh, Molly, I have a palm. I can eat catfish if the bat is not too salty. Um, I can eat redfish. And when you eat fish, sometimes if it's real greedy, the bat it means it's salty. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to find out, and I'm going to ask her if I could possibly go see a hand specialist. I wonder if a hand specialist might be able to pinpoint down what this might be. Yeah, I do have arthritis. I do have arthritis, that's for sure. I watch my sodium because it causes it to build up fluid, and it's not good for you. Right. Yeah, so, uh, you know, Larry, there's a couple of things that come to mind. Certainly, osteoarthritis is sort of that wear and tear arthritis that we all get to some extent. Some people get mm-hmm. it more than others. And the more, you know, the more abnormal movements you can have in a joint, I should say, the more you can have long-term, you know, complications from that. 
That being said, though, one of the worst things you can do is quit moving it. So it, I'm glad you, you know, they sent you to the to the uh, therapist for either physical therapy or occupational therapy because that can help with strengthening the muscles and keeping those joints moving because that's the way they sort of lubricate themselves. But there are a couple of other things that may be playing into this, and particularly since you said you couldn't eat some types of food, and fish mm-hmm. are, are one of those categories. Have, do you know if they have tested you for gout? No, sir. Uh, there's one thing I can tell you to add to this to give you an idea. Yeah. I could go eat fried chicken at Popeye's. I don't eat spicy food, but the regular fried chicken, my hands, I had severe cramping in my hands. Hmm. But on the other hand, I could go buy fried chicken from Kroger and eat it, and it don't bother me. So it could be a diet-related thing. It could be something bad at Popeye's that they don't use at Kroger. I don't know if they find it in or what they're putting in the batter. Yeah. So I, I think it's kind of diet-related. I don't know if, he can, if any kind of test can be done or what maybe a hand specialist might be able to do. Yeah, I, I would, uh, you know, the biggest diet-related arthritis um, is gout. And it is because you have too much of a substance called uric acid in your system. And it can, it's a breakdown product of certain types of proteins that we eat. So it is possible that that might be what you have or a component of what you have. It's a pretty easy test to do to test for it because they'll test a uh, there's a blood test for uric acid. And uh, if it's high enough, they may be able to give you a medication to keep it low in your body Mm -hmm. and you wouldn't you know, wouldn't have that. Or, you know, it sounds like you you have identified some of the things that are triggers but I'm not aware of another type of arthritis that would trigger that, that it, you know, is sort of related to something you're eating. I do think it wouldn't be a bad, <clears throat> it wouldn't be a bad, uh, and, and that, by the way, any physician, really primary care physician, should be familiar with gout. So that's something they can do, you know, just with your primary physician, uh, regardless if you go to see somebody else. But it's not a bad idea to see either a hand surgeon and, um, you know, that you may not need surgery, but there are some things that you can do. Sometimes individual joints, they can inject those or they can, you know, suggest certain things for that that might improve your mobility and decrease your pain that you're having. Um, and uh, certainly sometimes, you know, depending on what's going on, they, they may have may uh, recommend surgery. Another group of people that um, that might can help you are the rheumatologist. Um, that's R H E M E U M. Sorry, rheumatologist, and they really specialize in inflammatory congi- conditions of the of the joints. So that's that's another person that you know if you're just not getting any better with what you're doing, that might be somebody else you can see. But I would definitely ask them about gout. And uh, it, again, it's a pretty easy test to 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 get. If it's not gout, that's fine. You know, at that point, I probably would ask you know to see either an orthopedic hand specialist. Or plastic surgery actually has uh, hand surgeons too. So uh, a hand surgeon would be would be somebody to see, or a rheumatologist after that. But definitely ask them about gout. Yes, sir. Okay, I certainly would do that. Thank, thank you so much. Yes, sir, and thank you for calling. Have- All right, let's uh, go on to our next caller, which is Kenny from Vaughn. Good morning, Kenny. Good morning. What's your question this morning? Uh, a couple of callers ago you had uh discussed uh giving blood and in my i'm 60 about to be 66 in my early 60s i was uh diagnosed with a type 2 diabetic and uh 
I think it might have been in the course of trying to give blood, and I haven't tried to give blood since. I was wondering, I mean, is there any impediment or uh, uh, prohibition to me giving blood as a, as a diabetic? There might be. Um, you know, it, it's... It's not a bad idea just to, I mean, they're going to ask you, what medical conditions do you have? Uh, what medications are you taking? Because there are some medications that, uh, depending on what type of blood product that they're getting, may be hanging around. But usually they can filter most of that stuff out so that you're just getting the blood components. But somebody with diabetes, I don't think that that is on the current list of a contraindication from doing that. Um, you know, from giving blood, because again, there's different things in the blood. So it's rare that we give whole blood these days. I mean, you can do that, but most of the time it's much easier and much more specific to give a blood component. For instance, if somebody, let's say, has a uh, GI bleed or they come into the hospital with trauma and they lose a lot of blood, then they would typically be typed and matched for their own blood type and for certain other uh, antigens in their blood, and then they would receive just the red blood cells, um, and that's just that one component. Um, we tend to filter out things like the white blood cells. We do give platelets, and we give some of the clotting factors in the blood, but those are, are sort of filtered out as different components. So even if you do have diabetes and your blood sugar is high, um, that's not going to, you know, are higher than the than the general population. Then you, that's not going to be a big issue with doing that. But they're going to check for all that. They're going to, you know, do a screen. They're going to probably check you your hemoglobin, which is a, a quick and easy test right there uh, it, that they get back in just less than a minute uh, to make sure you're not anemic and that you have enough red blood cell mass. Um, if you know regular donors. Um, they actually will donate platelets, and you can do that more frequently. Um, and uh, it's a, it takes a little bit longer, though, to do something like that. That's a little bit more specialized than just you're going and, you know, 30 minutes later you're coming back out. Uh, you well, do. I've, been, go, I've, been, I've go, been kind of passed over a couple of times, doing like blood drives, and I've sort of volunteered or gotten, gotten, gotten volunteered to, right. to uh, right. participate. Yeah. And then I got there, and they, they, they weeded me out, and I – I've kind of gotten discouraged about even trying to go back and, get, and and do it again. So I'm just wondering if it's worth doing it. If it's, if it's, yeah, give them a call. Just call them up and say, hey, these are my medical conditions, and they may can give you that information over the phone and save a trip there. So, uh, okay. But, yeah, they, they do have – you know, if you think about it, I mean, they want as many people to, to give as they can. However um, – you have to have a screening process to keep the blood product safe for whoever the recipient's sure. going to be and for you, um, because there may be some reasons why you shouldn't give blood. But they, they, that process uh, to screen out the people that, you know, that they may have problems with, it may be a very, very low percentage of complications, let's say less than 5%. But that may be high enough to screen you out of the process because that's too big a risk. You know, we want to really make blood products a whole, you know, as safe as they can be, which they are. Um, sure. You know, if you go back to the 70s or even before that in the 60s, if you got blood products, it wasn't so there were a lot of risk with it. Um, they were a lot more than we have today. In fact, a lot of people, we mentioned hepatitis C, uh, before we were routinely testing for it, 
uh, just because we didn't know about it. A lot of people got, if they got transfusions through something like a car wreck, then a lot of them did get hepatitis C uh, from the blood products. But that's, you know, like I said, we, we test for a lot of things now to weed that out so that you don't have that risk. Sure. Okay. Thank you. All right, Kenny, you take care. And uh, if anybody else can go give blood, hey, today's the day to do that. I didn't mean to make a plug for donation of blood, but that is a great thing to talk about. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering your calls and questions about all kinds of good health care topics. And we have great ones today. I want to thank everybody who has called up to up to this point. And uh, it's always what makes our program great is that you get to call in and sort of just whatever's on your mind. And let me um, assure you, if you're doubting that anybody else in the state of Mississippi or our listening area has these exact same problems, you're probably mistaken about that. There's probably at least three or four or maybe more people that have the exact same question, and maybe they just didn't think to ask it. So uh, it's always a great idea to call in with those because it helps so many people out. We get that feedback all the time. We're going to go to Kent from Cleveland. Good morning, Kent. Uh, good morning. Hey, I, I don't know if I'm on topic. With, I just No, you're, the topic is whatever you want, Kent, so go ahead. Okay. All, right. all right. I just have a question. I haven't really heard a good answer to this. Our, our town is going to get two or three cannabis or you know, medical marijuana shops. And I just wonder why nobody's talking about the effects of smoking versus I, I can't still can't understand why it wasn't just allowed as a you know THC prescription. You know I can see the need for it, but I I can't understand smoking as a delivery method. It seems like you know I, I just wonder if 20 years from now we're going to be having medical marijuana uh, lawsuits over the smoke, just like with tobacco. And I I don't understand why that is necessary versus a gummy or a pill or something right. like that. Yeah. And, and, uh, there are some other concerns with that. Yeah, I can definitely address that. So, uh, you know, the, the reason, let's see, the reason for, you know, the, a prescription based, uh, THC component for various things, whether that would be intractable seizures or chronic pain or uh, chronic inflammatory states, maybe it's palliative care for, you know, whatever that, <clears throat> has been looked at, but it's been very small studies. Um, in fact, we had, uh, we've got, a, uh, I'm not sure if it's still going on, but um, we had for a long time, particularly in children <clears throat> with seizures that weren't controlled with the usual medications, we did have a study looking at that. And it was very tightly regulated about the dose that they were getting. Wasn't smoked. That was like, just like a, a pill or a, a capsule that you would normally get. Um now, I would say, you know, almost every physician would tell you smoking is not a good way to introduce medications into your body, um, certainly if it's inhaled with, uh, by, by nature of an inflammatory way, like if you've got to heat it up. Same thing with vaping. Uh, there is a, a thermal injury, particularly with vaping. It's actually higher than smoking. Uh, to the lung itself, uh, some of those temperatures are upwards of 160 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, so they are, are really hot and those lung tissues can be damaged. And we have lots of, uh, cases of that. Um, so, and the other thing is it's variable. 
So it varies from person to person on how much of the active compound you can deliver that way. It is it is absorbed really easily through the lungs. That's one of the reasons why nicotine is, is so addictive is because if you smoke, that's an easy way to get it. But with THC, it's such a big, heavy compound and, and very oily in, in nature. You have to get that temperature up and then inhale it that way. So it is much easier and much safer to ingest it. Um, and you mentioned a couple of those forms, you know, so whether it's gummies or whether it's it's baked in something or something like that, something that tastes good, that's that's you know, a, a probably a, a better way of doing that. You still can have a lot of variability, and we're going to see that with the way that that uh, THC or marijuana cannabis is uh, is distributed uh, throughout the state. But that's a whole lot safer. I would never recommend to a patient to smoke it uh, or anything. Now, that's not the same as the inhaled medications like for asthma, for instance. Now, that's different, and that's not a thermal mechanism that you're introducing that. And you do need those substances in the lungs to work correctly. But as far as delivering it to the whole body as a system, I would say eating it is much more favorable to smoking it. Yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't understand why it wasn't just prescribed like a medication you'd pick up in the drugstore like anything else. Right, just, uh, yeah. Hard time understanding. And it know, may, yeah. you know, yeah. one day we may get there, but, but there needs to yeah. be a lot more research into that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you very much. All right, thank you, Kent. Let's go to Richard, who I think is going to be our last caller. We've got about uh, two minutes, Richard. All right, Doc. <laughs> what I want you to do is check on a vitamin K2. Yeah. Have you heard? Do you know anything about it? Yep. So a little bit about it. Now, I think uh, as generally is is touted, a lot of times vitamin supplements will get over uh, marketed, shall we say, uh, and have a lot of claims that are sort of contrary to what they actually do. Um, But... um, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, uh, you know, this may bit get a little bit K two. Uh, um, I think we had a caller about a year ago that asked the same uh-huh. question, but it can be, it can be sort of dangerous. It's not like vitamin K that we you can take for like clotting disorders and those kinds of things. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit different from that. And it doesn't have a lot of evidence to, uh, you know, in, in the same way that we would have evidence to say that, yeah, this definitely works for this kind of thing. Or, um, uh-huh. But uh, <clears throat> I would be a little careful with it, honestly, um, yeah. just because of, of some of the untested side effects. Um, but vitamin K, uh, you know, is certainly it's in plant foods and leafy green vegetables, and that's the one that the body needs to to uh, work properly. Um, K2, if you're talking about the vitamin portion of it, is found more right. in animals and fermented foods. Fermented foods, right. Yeah. Right. This, is, uh, this was a physical therapist saying that he – and I was having some some pain, back pain, and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I just and he said, well, he took the K two because it helped with his joints and his fingers because he does a lot of massage. And he said they learned that the Japanese didn't have a lot of problems with right. with arthritis and that kind of thing. And so this form is the is a fermented part. On selling right, and it's come, it's it's because the Japanese eat so much fermented food they found it in the food. So yeah. 
Yeah, and yeah, I have osteoporosis, and I've taken, uh, you know... I don't, uh, I don't think... I'm going to have to cut you off just for time, sure. but, Richard, but right. I, I don't think it necessarily is going to harm you to take it, for the, particularly for those reasons. You just might want to check with your pharmacist about other medications that you're taking, but certainly worthwhile. But, you, again, a little bit of caution there on, on uh, you know, some of the, uh, the things that they market it for. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for everyone for calling in as usual. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. We will see you next week at 11 on Southern Remedy. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.